outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number six. Today, we're going to be talking about planning and executing DIY bow hunting trips for whitetails. And joining us is Bernie Berenger, author of The Freelance Bowhunter. Stick around, because this is going to be good. All right. Hey there, folks. I am really excited today for this podcast because joining me and our co-host Dan Johnson is Bernie Berenger, an accomplished outdoor writer and the author of the excellent new book, The Freelance Bowhunter. Welcome to the show, Bernie. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited to have you here. Um, and how have you, How's your afternoon been so far? Uh, it's been, been pretty good, uh, trying to get some uh, deadlines uh, taken care of and get some magazine articles out and it's a good day to do that because it's pouring rain here in minnesota <laughs> i feel your pain that's actually the same thing i'm doing i've got a a deadline looming tomorrow that i'm racing towards so good stuff good stuff with that said then before we dive too far into things i was hoping that you could give the listeners a brief introduction to who you are what you do and you know what your new book is all about sure i'd be happy to uh I've, I've been a bow hunter for many, many years. I actually started bow hunting in 1973 when I was 14 years old, and primarily because my folks wouldn't let me own a gun. And uh, I'm not sure if that was more about the gun or about me, actually. But, <laughs> uh, I, came from a, I came from a non-hunting family, and a neighbor of mine was a bow hunter. And there was very few bow hunters at that time, you know, back in the 70s. And um, I bought a, uh, a recurve a uh, bear um a bear bow from uh, a guy that sold uh bear archery equipment out of his garage and uh started bow hunting and just absolutely got hooked on it and uh I was uh, I was a commercial fur trapper through the 80s and then when the fur markets kind of fell apart I went back to college got a degree in journalism and and really took the bow hunting more seriously um and that's when I started traveling I lived in northern Iowa at the time, which was kind of the wrong part of Iowa for the really big bucks. And so I started going to southern and southeastern Iowa and then uh, uh, eventually ended up moving up to northern Minnesota. And I've continued to travel and, and I've been able to bow hunt in quite a few different states. And 
Uh, I like the challenge of trying to do it on my own. I, I don't, I almost never go with outfitters, actually. I'm primarily a do-it-yourself hunter, and I mm-hmm. primarily hunt public land, although there's been times when I've been able to get permission on some private land and so forth. But I'm um, just pretty well hooked on uh, on the traveling to bow hunt, and uh, I've been somewhat successful, taking me a while to really uh, learn some of the, uh, the tricks and the things that make it a little easier. So that was the purpose of the book, is to try to, pass some of the information along to other people who might have the same interest. And, you know, in the last 15 years or so, uh, the Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel, these TV shows uh, have really generated a lot of interest in people going to other areas to hunt. There's a lot of people in Pennsylvania or North Carolina or Michigan or some of the states that typically don't produce as much uh, quality, bigger bucks, and those people see the TV and they go, man, I'd like to shoot a buck like that, you know? Right, right. And uh, so there's there's kind of a niche that I felt there was enough people out there to actually produce a book, and I've been really surprised. The book has done very well, and I'm not uh, not to the break-even point yet, but that's in the, that's it looks like it'll happen at least. <laughs> that's great. Well, I'm uh, I'm one of those Michigan guys that, that wanted to look for greener pastures, so I've been doing just that, just like you said. I've been traveling to other states and have hunted now, I think, five or six different states, and I feel like I'm relatively experienced in, you know, this kind of DIY whitetail trip, um, but even, you know, with that experience, after reading your book, um, I still thought I took a lot from it and learned some great new ideas, uh, so I really found it valuable. Well, I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, that's, that's really exciting to me that that people I'm getting a lot of good feedback like that too and um that that's exciting and more than making money on the book I I really like to help people be more successful that's real gratifying yeah absolutely that said then um you know maybe diving into the the real topic here then you know as your book begins you ask the question of whether or not a DIY bow hunting trip is for you you know for the listener so can you explain to us, you know, for one of our listeners, how can they better understand if this kind of trip is a good fit for them? Yeah, that's um, that's a very good question. Uh, it, it really isn't for everybody because uh, it's very hard work, first of all. Um, and you've got to really be a learner. You've got to be a person who enjoys learning about the deer and, and seeing new areas and trying new things. And, um, you know, some people would be perfectly happy to go to Iowa, say, and uh, hire an outfitter and have them do all the work and you just get in the stand and hope mm-hmm. a nice buck goes by. But um, for me, that's not nearly as gratifying as finding a place and uh, really uh, learning it and figuring it out and putting the stand in the right tree and uh, and shooting that deer. And uh, I should also say that the, um, the, the TV shows have created kind of an environment where People have unrealistic expectations a lot of times where they go, you know, they, they really think that you can go to parts of Iowa and there's and there's literally every property has 150 or 160 class buck on it. And um, that's not necessarily true. Those right. bucks are certainly out there. There's 180 inch. You know, if, if you spend 10 days in Iowa in a really good spot, you've got a really good chance to see a blue and crockett buck. But getting that buck is a completely different story, and particularly on public land where they get a lot of pressure. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, a guy has to ask himself, you know, what, what are my expectations? What do I want to do? Am I really willing to put in the work and do it myself and get the extra satisfaction out of it? Um, or would I rather have, uh, you know, somebody else do the work and I could just go there and, and uh, have a chance to shoot the deer? 
Yeah, I think I'm a lot like you in that I I get so much more satisfaction out of actually putting in the work, you know, to achieve a goal. Um, I there's a story I always tell about there's a mountain in New Hampshire that I climbed and I didn't tell my wife that there's actually a road that goes to the top of the mountain too. Um, so we got all the way to the top and then she saw a parking lot. She said, well, why the heck did we climb up it if there was a road? And, you know, to me, the summit and that view from the top wouldn't mean nearly as much and it wouldn't be as beautiful if I hadn't actually sweated and worked my way all the way to the top. And I think that's kind of how I look at deer hunting too. Yeah, I get that. I, I definitely understand that. Yeah. So, so speaking though of, again, if this is the right fit for someone, you know, can somebody on a, on a limited budget and with limited vacation time, you know, pull off a trip like this? I think a lot of people assume that you need a lot of money to go out of state and to, you know, chase these big bucks. But is that, is that true? Well, it's really not true. And I think that's the key to what has made this book so successful so far is that, you know, this is about doing it on a budget. Um, you know, I, I, either stay in a travel trailer or motel or I've camped a few times and, you know, I've, I've learned to eat, um, you know, on a budget and I, I cover a lot of really uh, cool tactics to save money in the book. And, yeah. and even for me, um, I have, I've shot quite a few nice bucks over the years, but I haven't mounted very many. And the reason for that is I'd rather take the money that it costs to mount it and go on another hunt. And so, <laughs> You know, point. I mean, as a writer, uh, I'm, I'm not flush with cash and I, I have to really watch, uh, the budget. And so I've learned to, to save money and do things in a way that allows me to do, uh, more of it. Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world that I'm in a similar boat too. So how many, you know, how many trips like this are you taking a year? Um, I, it's usually one or sometimes two trip, but they're, but each trip may be more than one state. Um, you know, for example, I will be hunting Kentucky and Kansas this year in addition to my uh, home state and, and uh, always have a backup because I've got some good areas that I've hunted in Missouri before, but and Missouri's an over-the-counter state where you can just go up and, and uh, arrive and, draw, and just go buy a tag. Right. We have to apply for a tag in Kansas, for example. So, you know, if I happen to tag out fairly quickly in Kansas, then I can just hit Missouri on my way home and, and spend a few days in some areas that I've already scouted out in Missouri. So um, I, I'll say usually I'll take one or two trips a year, but sometimes it'll be as many as four states. Wow. Busy fall. Um, so this kind of just popped in my head, but I know you mentioned you lived in Iowa for a period of time, and I've got some friends, including Dan, our co-host, who lives in Iowa as well. Do you think there's any, for a guy that already lives in a top whitetail state, is it worth doing one of these out of state trips um, just for the the sake of it, or you know, what's your opinion on that? Were you going out of state when you lived in Iowa, or did you focus on, you know, right at home where you knew there were some good deer? Well, I I did make one out of state trip uh, when I lived in Iowa. I primarily hunted throughout the state, though. I would go to areas that I felt were better areas than where I lived, and I lived in the north central part of the state. I was kind of born and raised there, and and. Uh, you know, it's real open, flat farm country, and with the shotgun season, the deer just don't have a place to hide, and, you know, the soils are perfect. Everything is perfect for growing big bucks. The genetics are there. It's just that they got shot down so hard that uh, the potential to shoot a bigger buck is in in uh, other parts of the state, northeast and southeast and south-central, and I've, uh, 
Um, so that's what I was doing when I lived in Iowa. And then I fishing, I was involved in tournament fishing, which, which brought me to Minnesota. And so after I moved to Minnesota, I got a lot more, uh, and I, I always said that for a fisherman, it's a great place to live for, but for a deer hunter, it's like dying and going to hell. And, uh, <laughs> this, this part of, this part of Minnesota, um, 80% of the deer, 80% of the bucks are shot when they're a year and a half old in this part of the state. Yikes. Um, there's, there's pockets of good whitetail hunting in Minnesota. Don't get me wrong, but overall the state is not one of the top states. So I would say if you live in a great state, you can add another state, um, just, and, and have an opportunity to go shoot another buck in another state. Even if you're in a, a terrific location, there's no point in, uh, in feeling like you're limited to one state, even if you're in, in one of the best states. Yeah. So, so for you, Dan, since you live in Iowa, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever considered going out of state or, I don't know, have you before? I have not hunted whitetails um, out of state um, because I don't want to sound arrogant, but I have good whitetail property. So I'm, and I don't own it or lease it. I just have permission to hunt a really, really good um, piece of Iowa property. Now, if I was to go out of state to hunt, uh, a different whitetail, um, a different whitetail state. I'd probably go somewhere like Kansas where the terrain is different. Um, my uncle lives down there, so I'd already have kind of an inn um, and, uh, you know, just a different type of hunting. It's not your Iowa ag fields and draws and um, rolling timbers as opposed to a flatter land where you're hunting like um, creek systems, river systems, and fence rows basically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So that, that brings up another good question that, you know, you mentioned one of the things you'd be looking for was a different experience. Uh, but Bernie, when you're looking at a state to potentially hunt, you know, what's, what's the most important thing you're looking for and what are a couple of factors that you're taking a look at when deciding what your out of state destination should be? Well, a different experience certainly is one of them. I, I just had a ball hunting in Montana um, in southeastern Montana, and I, it was, I never dreamed that I'd climb in a tree stand when it was 100 degrees. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, literally, I just had so much fun because I saw so many deer, and I killed a beautiful 10-pointer on the third day that I was out there on September 3. I think it was 2011 or 12. Is that velvet and, still? Um, no, it, it actually, there was actually velvet deer with it, but uh, um, this one had already uh, rubbed its velvet off. Now, okay. I like hunting North Dakota because uh, it's completely different out there where I hunt. Um, you know, there's, there's, that's a big part of it. I'm, I'm kind of in love with the challenge of outwitting a mature deer. So that's another big part of it for me is I want to go to places where I have a chance to shoot a nice deer. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it has the biggest rack. It, you know, in my book, there's a picture of a, a six-year-old buck that won't even make Pope and Young minimums, but I shot that buck on public land, and to me, that's really gratifying because, uh, you know, it's it's a real challenge to shoot a mature buck on public land, and so the fact that that thing wasn't a 150-inch buck didn't mean that much to me. It was a older, mature, big body buck with a thick chest, and that was a, that was a really fun hunt for me, and I was really happy with that deer. Oh, I bet. I can... I can definitely relate to that. I killed kind of a similar deal. Killed a five and a half year old this past year that that wouldn't score well at all and wasn't the biggest rack in the world. But you know the amount of work that went into it. It just again, like we talked about earlier, that work it, it kind of manifests itself in how much you enjoy the hunt and you know the memories afterwards too. 
Well, another important part of this, too, is that, you know, I'm doing this not to please a TV audience or anything. I'm basically doing this for myself. So, you know, if a guy would shoot that buck on TV, uh, the the viewers would go, man, why'd he shoot that deer? But I don't don't care about that. You know, I'm I'm out there because, um, you know, I'm out there to, to enjoy the challenge and uh, that deer was a perfect deer for that situation. That was the 12th day of a seven day hunt. You know what I mean? I was, <laughs> I was expecting to leave uh, se- after seven days and I was still there after 12 days. So the trophy um, is in the eye of the beholder, right? Get it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So true. Um, now in your book, Bernie, you mentioned a pretty detailed kind of research process that you go through when looking to find these different states and properties. Um, and a lot of the same things you've done, you've done, I do as well. But for the listeners out there, could you maybe break down a handful of the different steps that go into you choosing your state and then you know, the area and property? Um, I think that'd be really interesting. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Yeah, I think that's probably the part that people seem to like the most about the book is the process that I explain how to go through the, you know, you're starting wide. You haven't even decided what state you're going to go through, and you're getting down, and, and you're you're working it down from that broad approach all the way down to the exact tree you're going to hang your stand into in some state somewhere in a piece of property. Well, how do you get from point A to point B um, is a pretty important process, and uh, I really think that the key to it is being able to do the research. And when I first started doing this, there was absolutely nothing compared to what there is today as far as, 
research tools. You know, um, your website, my website, bowhuntingroad.com, has a lot of resources. This book has 60 pages of information about which states are the good states and what parts of the state produce the biggest bucks and yeah, I love and that. so forth. Yeah, and um, there's so much information out there. You can get on Google Earth. You know, I've killed deer in places that I found on Google Earth. And um, so, you know, if you start wide and you decide, okay, you know, how much of the tag cost? How how do I get a tag? Um, the over-the-counter states, and I go through this process in pretty good detail in the book. And you know, if if you want to hunt Iowa, it's going to take you at least three years to draw a tag. You have to have at least two preference points and possibly three in some of the zones. So um, you're not just going to go to Iowa this fall. Um, you could go to uh, Missouri or North Dakota or Kentucky or some of these good quality states that have over-the-counter tags. So you got to decide which state you're going to go to first. And then um, you're going to look at what public land is available in the state, how much pressure it gets. And um, and then, you know, once you've decided which piece of property you're going to go to, then, then you're actually looking for the spots. And you can do a lot of that online, too. You, you, know, you know, like I said, with Google Earth, you can see potential deer travel corridors. Um, today's the forums today, you know, you can go on there and it's amazing. I, I've put stuff on a forum and said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to this part of the state. Does anybody hunt there? Can I, can I get a piece of advice? And I mean, I had a guy actually, um, that offered to drive me around and show me some spots. Wow. And, uh, so, you know, the forums are, are a great place to mine information. So a lot of that, um, can be done before you ever leave home. And then of course, once you're on the property, then that's, that's the real key to finding the right spot. And you're going to hunt differently than you would if you owned a piece of property or had permission on a piece of property. Um, I call it hunting aggressively. And that's a really important key to what makes this, this all work. Because, you know, if you had, say, a couple hundred acres of, of ground that you hunt, um, you'd probably have a couple bedding areas there that you would never go into. You might have a sanctuary that you really avoid at all costs. And, and uh, you would know where the deer tend to feed and where they tend to travel and um, where the food sources are. But if you go to a new piece of property, you got to start from scratch. And you're going to walk right through those bedding areas and bust the deer out. And, and you hate doing it, but it's part of – you have to do it because you need to know where they are. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you can learn the travel corridors uh, by looking at trails and following tracks and looking at scrapes and rubs and uh, – you know, you really have to you have to get out on the ground and uh, and learn the property. The the temptation is when you first get there is to just here's a good looking spot, put up a tree stand and get in it. But that's not necessarily the best way to hunt because you, you don't have the confidence that it takes. If you're on a rut hunt, you might want to sit in a stand all day. Um, you want to have confidence that you're in the right spot before you ever get in there because you're going to be second guessing yourself all the time if you don't. And you. Uh, so you got, you've got to know what's over the next hill, and that way you have confidence when you do get in the stand that you're in the right spot. So those are all pretty important keys to it. And, uh, you know, first day I arrive at a new property, I rarely hunt the first day. I'm, I'm usually maybe glassing the property from the roads with a spotting scope, trying to figure out where the deer activity is. And the first stand that I put up is likely to be what I call an observation stand, where I'm actually putting a stand up in a place where I can have a good view of a large field or um, a open timber or something like that and try to get a better feel for what the movement looks like. And, and then throughout the week, then I'll narrow it down and narrow it down. And 
by the time I, um, you know, have, have three or four days under my belt, I'm usually pushing all my chips into one spot. You know, I'm cashing in. I'm going all in on one tree where this is the place I think it's going to happen, you know. And with that, oh, I'm sorry. With that said, um, how many times do you visit a property before, like, the season actually starts or before your trip? I know time and distance have a lot to do with that, but do you do a lot of scouting on those properties physically before before you do a hunt? Typically, I don't very much because they're usually too far away. Um, I, I try to, if I can, if I'm in an area, like for example, you know, I'm, I told you I'm going to Kentucky, um, this fall. Well, I was at the archery trade show, um, in Kentucky or in, uh, in Nashville, uh, in January. And I drove through some of the area that I'll be hunting this fall on my way back, um, just to look it over good and kind of see what the lay of the land looks like. So there's occasion when I can do that, but more likely I tend to, um, to go back to some of the spots that I found that are really good. And, uh, I killed a, just a terrific buck in Kansas last fall. And I, it was a spot that I found the year before. didn't get one, but I went back last fall and, uh, fine tuned my positioning a little bit and so forth. And I, I just, I shot a great, um, really nice 145 class eight pointer. Well, that's the kind of a spot where I think a guy could go back and each year, if the wind was right, you'd have a pretty good chance to shoot a decent buck on that spot every year. And that's another thing a person has to ask himself, are you interested in keeping going back to the same spot or, you know, do you want to keep trying new areas? And right. that's a real trade off for me. I like to, I like to see new, I got itchy feet. My wife says, she, she <laughs> says that, uh, you know, I'm uh I, I like to try new areas, but I also have a, a handful of spots that I go, you know, I got to get back there. If it ain't this year, I got to go back there next year. And, and so, you know, there, there's a combination. It's a trade-off. It's a lot of personal preference too, on what you like. More yeah. for the adventure. Definitely. Yeah. So, so speaking yeah. of your, of your hunting strategy, Bernie, that was one of the things I was hoping to, you know, to dive into it as I saw in the book. And as you mentioned, you know, usually start your hunts with the observation stand, start learning things and then narrow down your, your stand options. How do you use trail cameras throughout that process? Boy, the trail cameras are a really important component to the process. I, I, there's two reasons I, I like to use a lot of trail cameras. Number one, because I want to know what the potential of the area is as soon as possible. Um, I want to inventory the box, I guess is the best way to put it where, you know, if I've, I've been on hunts where I had a 125 or 130 inch buck walk by the first time I sat in the stand and I pass them up. Then I was there for a week and that turned out to be the biggest buck I saw, you know, so the sooner you can get a handle on what the potential of the area is, the better off you are. And there's no better way to do that than with trail cameras. And in particular, I hang them both on trails and on scrapes and scrapes. Um, anytime after the, about the last week in October, uh, third to last week in October, if you start putting trail cameras on scrapes and then use some good fresh urine or some deer lure in those scrapes, you'll inventory the majority of the bucks. Within three, four days, you'll have the majority of the bucks on camera. So you have a lot better chance, you have a lot better idea of what the potential is and what you should hold out for. And uh, so that's the first aspect. The second aspect is it will tell you what stage of the rut these deer are in based on how they're reacting and you know, you can look at them and see how, um, 
you know, how heavily they're working the scrapes and are their tarsal glands stained up like they've been rutting pretty hard? Are the does in the scrapes or just the bucks? Those will give you clues as to what the status of the rut is, and that will help you make decisions on stand placement. You know, are these bucks on the cruise or are they starting to uh, uh, to get in a lockdown stage where they're actually coupled up with does and aren't traveling as much? Then you need to be focusing more on the bedding areas and so forth. So, yeah, trail cameras, I'm... I literally have four to six trail cameras out almost all the time when I'm hunting. Wow. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to ask was how many cameras you've got out there. Do you do you use any of the uh, any of the new cameras that are transmitting, you know, photos right to your phone or to your computer at all, or are you still visiting those cameras to physically check on the SD card? I'm I'm physically uh, checking them, and I I get in and out as quick as I can with these cameras, um, and I also use like a scent killer sprays on my pant legs as I'm moving through the forest to try to try to reduce my scent as much as possible. You know, you doing it the way that I do it in this aggressive style hunting, you can't completely reduce, you can't completely eliminate your impact on the area, but you can reduce it by, by moving quickly and reducing your scent. And, uh, and I, I don't check cameras in, until I need to, you know, I'd like to let them sit for two or three days if possible. But there are times some you just have to go find out what's there because you need to know where you're going to hunt that night. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Dan, do you have uh, any other questions on the top of your head after hearing a couple of these things? Well, I mean, I, obviously I got a ton of questions because that's just the time, type of person. First, first things first, though, you're from Forest City, right? Yep. Yep. I graduated from Waldorf College. Oh, you are. Yep. Small that? world. <laughs> Now back to whitetails. Um, I think I read somewhere where you said you've been somewhere north of twenty do-it-yourself hunts. Is that correct? Yeah, about that. What, what's your success rate on these hunts? Um, my success rate is probably just under fifty percent. Wow. I would say I, I I haven't actually counted them up, but I would say um, between one out of two to one out of three is is, and I'm fairly selective. Um, you know, I'm not holding out for a really big buck in every hunt, but I'm I'm fairly selective, and I I will, um, you know, I'll go home with the tag in my pocket rather than shoot a, a buck that that doesn't satisfy me. You know, so, uh, but realistically, and I, I going back to the unrealistic expectations that, that people sometimes have when they start out doing this. Um, if if you can get a buck one, one or two. Um, you know, 50% or 30% of the time on these hunts, you're doing pretty good. That's, that's the reality of it. Oh yeah. No, I've seen the same thing. These, these hunts aren't easy. And I think, like you said, people need to go into it with that type of expectation that part of what you're going into is the experience and it's, it's going to be a challenge, but it's very rewarding when it does come together. And even when things don't come together, I think at least personally, I learn so much from these kinds of hunts and it's just, it's just such a fun challenge to try to put myself up against that it's it's worth going into it knowing that it could be pretty difficult right now one other thing or a couple other things that i thought were pretty interesting taping taking a step back away from the actual hunt is a few of the logistics that you talk about in the book um specifically you had some interesting ideas about kind of housing so where you stay during the hunt and then actually then how you're eating could you share with us a little bit about your uh philosophy on on how you handle those two topics 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question, and, and I do some of these seminars, and I think that's probably the number one question that people ask. And there's a lot of different options for lodging. Uh, one of them is like Dan mentioned, where if you know somebody and have a bed to sleep in, that's terrific because you're saving a lot of money and you have a you know you have a base of operation already in place. I've stayed in a lot of motel rooms. When I can, I pull a travel trailer. I love it. I love the travel trailer because it it works perfect. I got everything there. Um, you know, I just get up in the morning, uh, make myself a couple pieces of toast, fry an egg or something like that, and uh, and go hunting. And and surprising how many of these states allow you to camp in a travel trailer or a tent on the public hunting area or in the parking lots of the public hunting area. Nice. You know, I've camped uh, in Missouri and North Dakota and some of these places where there's no charge. You just pull up and camp. Every few days you got to go, uh, you know, get more water or LP gas or, or uh, drain your um, you know, sewer or whatever, but uh, reality is that's that's my preferred way to do it. I've also camped in a tent, um, which has been okay, but uh, it's hard to find a good shower at times. And um, you know, a couple times I have uh, been able to camp or stay in a cabin um, in Kansas a couple of years ago. I actually uh, rented a cabin from a Bible camp that was closed for the winter, and they just had a, a few cabins that they kept the heat on in, and they rented them out for sixty bucks a night, and that was really nice because it had a kitchenette in it and everything. That was, you know, for sixty bucks a night, it's not bad at all. So that worked out good. There's a lot of different options for lodging, and one thing that I like to do is trade hunts. Also, um, these aren't always public land hunts, but you know, I have really good bear hunting where I live here in Minnesota, and I'll go out and. I'll seek out people that have quality whitetail hunting somewhere that are willing to trade me a hunt. I'll offer them a bear hunt in exchange for a, uh, a whitetail hunt. And then I have a place to stay and, and, uh, some help in that way. So, you know, that's, that's, there's a lot of options for lodging. As far as the food goes, I'm a, you know, I like when people say I, uh, I live to eat, not eat to live. You know, <laughs> so I, uh, I like a hot meal at the end of the day and, and it keeps my spirit up. And, uh, so I use a lot of, uh, crock pot meals for, uh, slow cookers, you know, and I'll take, uh, and, and put the meals together before I leave home and just take like a Tupperware and I'll throw everything in there, like a piece of roast and, and some onion and potatoes and everything that goes in there with it and throw it in the freezer. And then, uh, when I get up in the morning, uh, I'll plug in the crock pot and turn it on and just drop that frozen hunk in the crock pot and when i get home uh after getting out of the tree stand at dark then the, the room smells delicious and i got a hot meal waiting for me so i use that a lot That's awesome. um, and yeah there uh you know i i think that eating well really helps keep your spirit up and keep your drive going you can wear down if the weather's nasty and stuff like that you know after four or five days of hunting hard and nasty weather you can lose your drive if you're not oh, yeah. careful and but if you're going to go to a a restaurant for two or three meals a day it's going to run up a pretty big bill and, and you can get pretty sick and tired of restaurant food too yeah that's the truth i uh, i unfortunately have typically fallen into that crowd um you know I, I save the money on i usually try to get the cheapest hotel i can get and I'm, I'm, I'm usually staying at a pretty lousy place but for some reason then i splurge and and i've been going out to eat every night and when i was reading your book i was like geez like there are a lot of better ways i could be doing this rather than eating mcdonald's every night and killing myself i could uh you know eat something nice from home and save a bunch of money on on top of that so that's a great idea now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver 
off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Yeah. Do you have any other you know, favorite snacks or anything during the day. I think, you know, it sounds like you're doing much like what I do hunting all day on these rut hunting trips. Um, you know, is there anything in particular that you like to pack for that hunt during the day or do you just grab whatever's handy, a granola bar, candy bar or something? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I'm, I'm just basically eating snacks during the course of the day, you know, a granola bar, some trail mix, maybe an apple or something like that in the backpack that, uh, you know, I tend to choose things that I can eat easily without a lot of movement or noise. I don't like crackly wrappers and stuff like that. If it's really still out, I don't, you know, I want to be real careful. And interestingly, um, a lot of people, when they're, it seems like a buck likes to show up when you're eating. So I <laughs> so always, true. it's a good idea to kind of have a plan of where you're going to ditch something that's in your hand, whether that's your phone or a, a book or, or, or a granola bar. It's, it's always a good idea to know if the deer shows up, how can you get rid of it in a hurry and get your bow in your hand? You know, so I, I always try to have a plan of what I'm going to do. Do you ever practice? Do you ever practice shooting your bow with like a sandwich in your mouth or an apple in your mouth? <laughs> no, I haven't. But <laughs> <laughs> might, I, uh, might be something worth trying. Yeah, I suppose. I use a kisser button, so that might be a little awkward. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Dan, did you have any other questions that were popping up in your head? Just as far as, you know, you mentioned different classes of animal um, that you kind of go after. Now, as a hunt progresses and you've been there for like a a four day and you're moving on to your fifth, sixth, seventh, do your standards stay true to like day one or do you, you let your standards go 
as the as the hunt or the trip progresses? I think your standards evolve based on the information you're gathering. For me, it does. Um, you know, I, I pretty much have a minimum of what I'm willing to take, and it also has to do with where I'm at in the hunt and, and how I'm going to take care of that deer. You know, um, there at, at, on some of my hunts, I have to just throw the deer in the truck and go home, and uh, so you know that's a component to it too. If I'm going if I'm going to another state, then I want to make sure if I got to if I got to take care of a deer, it's going to be one that's worth taking care of, you know? So that's another part of it. And I've, you know, you, we've all heard this statement that you should never pass up on the first day what you shoot on the last day. And I don't really agree with that because, you know, your, your information does evolve through the course of the hunt. And, um, you know, here's a good example. And I tell this story in the book, and it just happened last fall where I drew an Iowa tag and it takes three years to draw this, Iowa tag and man I had some really big bucks on trail camera and um I'd been in Iowa for two days and my wife calls and and she told me that her mother died so here I'm in a situation what do I do do I go home and uh, fortunately I have a amazing wife who said you better stay and hunt you know I know how long it took you to draw this tag and I don't want you to just come home for me and um so this was like on a Tuesday or Wednesday and the funeral's on a Saturday so suddenly my perception of what I was willing to take changed because I was planning to go to Kansas after that. And on Friday morning, about a 125 class buck comes in and presents me a perfect shot. And I just, I just fell in love with the timing. Normally I wouldn't have shot that buck at that point in the hunt. But then at that point, I could shoot that buck and put it in the truck and go to the funeral, which is halfway between home and where I was then. So, and so what, that's what I did is I, I cut the, I quartered the buck and, uh, put it in coolers. I, I gave it to my wife who took it home after the funeral. And then I went on to Kansas. So that's a case where everything changed with one phone call. Your wife sounds awesome, by the way. <laughs> she is. Uh, she, she's absolutely crazy or she would never put up with a guy like me for 35 years. <laughs> I think behind every good hunter is an amazing wife. I think that's pretty safe to say for most of us. <laughs> So you, you brought up an, a topic that I wanted to touch on, Bernie, and that was how you handle your deer after you're successful, after you kill one. Um, you know, in my situation, sometimes I've been with a partner where one of us is hunting, um, and if one of us kills one, the other will still stick around and help, you know, film the hunt or something like that because we're typically filming our hunts. So in those cases, we've brought our deer to a local processor and had them, you know, process the deer, freeze it. And then when both of us are done hunting, then we'll come back, grab that and head home. Um, but in your case, what are you typically doing and, and what are some of the options that, that a guy can, t- can look at? I have done that before. Um, and that works great. Uh, it depends on, you know, I like to butcher my own deer. So if I'm done and I shoot a deer and I'm ready to go home, I'll just take it home and do it at home. Um, I, I try to take a deep freeze with me whenever I can, especially if I'm going to more than one state at a time. And uh, I have a small chest freezer that I can get in the back of my truck or it fits in the front of my trailer. And I put your deer right there in my trailer and, and just wrapped it and froze it right there. And that's, that's another option too. So uh, there's, I, and I like venison. Our family eats a lot of venison. And so if I have a doe tag, you know, and I have a way to take care of that, dough i'm and if it won't uh impact my ability to get a buck i'm gonna shoot a doe and go ahead and get it butchered and, and frozen too 
Um, I've taken that chest freezer in the back of the pickup. I've taken it in my camping trailer. I've, I've, uh, I got a buddy that has a utility trailer, and he used like, likes to bring a four-wheeler along when he goes with me, and we throw the deep freeze in there. Um, so there's a lot of different options. I've flown on a couple of hunts, and in that case, I had to give the deer away. I didn't like that very much. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I would either, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Um, so that said then, I wanted to switch now to a couple questions that we had submitted uh, by some of our readers. And one reader, Dana Dutoy, had asked, you know, how do you approach landowners when in the situations where you're asking for permission, given the fact that you're an out-of-state hunter? Do you ever have a negative reaction given the fact that you're out-of-state, or do you just leave that out completely? Um, you know, how do you handle that situation? I think that's, and I actually dedicate part of the book into what I call the lost art of getting permission. And uh, it's more difficult if you're out of state, but it really helps if you just take a minute to kind of get to know the people and so forth. Um, a lot of times people just, they're in their full camouflage and maybe even face paint and they got mud all over their truck and they drive up and ask the guy, can I hunt your land? And, you know, the reaction is probably going to be pretty negative yeah. if you do that. But, I mean, he's going to look at your truck and go, is this guy going to tear up my fields? And, you know, he looks kind of scary. Um, so I think it helps to change your clothes and clean up and just go tell the guy and tell him a little bit, of, you know, talk, tell him a little about, about yourself and, and uh, that you're in the area and you're hunting and uh, you're, you, um, you'd like to, have an opportunity to hunt his property and just and before he has a chance to say no just say you know i i'm real conscientious i make sure i close the gates and i don't drive on the fields when they're wet and just become a salesman i guess and um there's always going to be some negative there's guys that have had bad experiences and but i would say overall the fact that you're from a different state isn't as much of a negative as you might think up front i think your appearance and your demeanor um, and your credibility probably trumps your, you know, your home. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I always like to say, um, you know, I think, you know, asking for permission on someone else's property to hunt is always kind of, uh, it's nerve wracking. It's a little intimidating. Um, so I would just for the listeners out there, if you've never done that, you know, I would just encourage you to, to give it a shot to not, to not be too worried about that because, you know, right now before asking somebody for permission, the answer is already no. So when you go up there and knock on the door, the worst thing that can happen is that the answer stays the same. So it's right. worth a shot, and it can really pay off, at least in my experience. You know, getting that private property access can, can really help. You know, one, you other, one other question from a, from a reader here, Jake Huff had asked, which state, Bernie, do you think is the most overlooked when it comes to DIY whitetail hunts? Is there a sleeper state out there that you think tops the, tops the ranks? Do I have to just give you one? <laughs> you, um, you can cheat and give us two or I three would, if you really if you uh, want to. Yeah, I I would say um, I'm going to give you three of them, okay? And okay. I'll give you in the order that I think they are. I think North Dakota is probably the number one because it has so much public land and so little hunting pressure. I mean, the population of Chicago is like four times the population of the entire state of North Dakota, you know? Jeez. And everybody hunts in North Dakota, but they all have their own land, you know? And there's huge amounts of public land out there, and I've hunted, you know, several hundred acre properties and been the only one bow hunting it, and the, the trophy potential is pretty good in North Dakota. Um, so I would say that that is one of my favorites. Eastern Colorado 
is some is one that very few people think about when they think about whitetails. But there are some really nice whitetails in eastern Colorado. There's a lot of big ranches and farms where the the guys, the people that own them, um, they don't value whitetails that much, and they're happy to um, to let you hunt their land more likely than they are in 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 a Iowa or in Illinois, for example. It's fairly easy to get permission in the western states. In fact, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana are all three like that, where a lot of these whitetails are patternable because they're eating in the alfalfa fields at night, and there's big herds of them out there. And the landowners are like, man, those things are eating all my alfalfa, you know, so it's fairly easy to get permission. I like to spot and stalk deer once in a while. Colorado is perfect for that. It's a, it's a great place where you just go out and you see the deer bed down in this wide open plains of eastern Colorado and then sneak up on them. And then I would say another sleeper is Indiana. Um, there's some really good quality deer hunting in Indiana. There's some fairly good sized properties that have public hunting, both state and Army Corps of Engineer properties around the reservoirs and so forth. And, you know, I, I, there's 16 states in the book that I go into a lot of detail on the opportunities in them. And uh, so there's others that I would kind of consider sleeper states too. Everybody knows about Wisconsin and Iowa and Illinois, and they're great. They're very good. Um, Illinois and Wisconsin in particular have a lot of hunting pressure on their public lands, but they they consistently produce good quality deer. So they're not sleepers, but uh, there's there's a lot of good hunting out there if a person really wants to go find it. Yeah, that's so true. Well, it's funny, you know, I took a look at your um, you know your top sixteen destination states, and I found that really interesting, especially because uh, several weeks ago. I was actually putting together an article for North American Whitetail ranking the top 20 DIY states for whitetails. And so it was interesting to look at my list um, based on the research I had done and, and compare that to your set of destination states. And there was a lot, of course, that were the same. Um, but something interesting, you know, when I was creating this list, I was looking at a lot of the factors that we've talked about today, you know, license cost, ease of acquisition, hunter density, public land, quantity and quality. Um, but then we also looked at... Um, kind of a way of judging trophy potential but on a per hunter basis so we took at the number we took a look at the number of Boone and Crockett entries per year and Pope and Young entries per year and divided by divided that by the number of hunters to really see what the real likelihood of you know per hunter what the chances were at a, at a Boone and Crockett or Pope and Young buck and something pretty interesting I found was that actually Colorado like you mentioned had a significantly better chance of, of tagging a trophy buck than almost anywhere else and because they have such a low number of whitetail hunters that, you know, for that low number, they're actually getting some pretty nice deer. But then all the other states you mentioned, too, they're right up there on the top of the list. There's, I think, like you mentioned, I think when it comes right down to it, there's a lot of great options if you're just willing to, you know, put in the work and, and go out there and give it a shot. Yeah, and, you know, people also need to realize that um, when you look at the number of Pope and Young and, Bull, and, and uh, Boone and Crockett bucks that are killed in some of these states, you have to compare that to the actual number overall deer harvest. You know, you would, you know, a deer, uh, let's say a state like Iowa, and I'm just going to grab a number out of the air here because I don't know off the top of my head what the number is that, let's say Iowa kills one Boone and Crockett out of every um, 40,000 or 20,000 whitetails or something. You know, that would seem like, um, you see, Iowa has this many Boone and Crockett's and Wisconsin has this many Boone and Crockett's. Well, what you don't realize is Iowa's, total harvest is, you know, about 100,000 deer a year, where I think Wisconsin's total harvest is probably more like 700,000 deer a year, and Wisconsin's killing more Boone and Crockett whitetails, but when you look at the number per 
overall harvest, it's actually a lot lower than in ratio than what Iowa is. So those are really important considerations to think about. It, otherwise, you would just look at the state that kills the most big bucks and go there. But there's a lot of other factors in that, too, and, and one of those is the amount of public land and the price of the tags, how hard it is to get a tag, and uh, there's a lot of pressure on public land. There's places in Illinois where you actually have to drive in the parking lot in the morning and take a number and and, and mark down on a, on a chart where you're going to be hunting on this public land, and when it's full, nobody else can hunt there. I mean, that's, how, that's what I call hunting pressure. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah, that doesn't sound like fun to me <laughs> at all. Well, no. I, th- I think this is a perfect place to wrap things up here as we're coming up on time. Um, but is there anything else, Dan, that you would like to add? I Just real quick. Okay, so out of all your hunts, do you have a memory that sticks out that you'd like to share with us real quick? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I'll, yes, I do. And I'll tell you, it, and it's not as much whitetail related, but... Um, I'll try to be brief. This is a fascinating story. And I was, my buddy Ron was with me in, um, in North Dakota. And we're hunting a piece of Army Corps of Engineer land along Lake Skakawea. And uh, he's in a stand about 250 yards from me. And my phone rings at like 15 minutes before sunset or before, you know, halfway between sunset and dark, like 15 minutes before end of shooting light. And I'm thinking, why is he calling me now? If, even if he shot a deer, wouldn't he text me? And I pick up the phone, and he goes, I just shot a mountain lion. I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. He said, he said, I just shot a mountain lion. I, I was scared. It was like looking right up at me. And I'm like, you can't shoot a mountain lion. There's, you don't have a mountain lion tag in North Dakota, you know? <laughs> and he says, well, I hope I missed it then. And I'm like, what are you? And he, he says, well, we got a picture of it on the trail camera. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, he said, this buck come running by. And um, so, so he grabbed his bow off the hanger. And he said, next thing you know, here comes this mountain lion, and it stops right at the base of his tree and looks up at him. And it just, he panicked, you know, it was like oh it scared the pudding out of him. <laughs> and so anyway, when he shot, the mountain lion circled around behind his tree, and he didn't know what happened to it. And he says, you've got to come and get me. And he's not wow. going to get out of his tree, you know what I'm saying? And uh, But anyway, he eventually got down, and we did have a picture of the mountain lion. There was a buck at the scrape in like 30 seconds of the next picture the mountain lion was at the scrape. And, uh, so that was, that was a pretty fun aspect of that hunt. That wow. is crazy. So did, you know, did he end up hitting that line? He didn't hit the mountain lion. Thank goodness he missed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All's well that ends well, right? Wow. Yeah. Well, that is, that is a fascinating story. You're right. <laughs> so, so Bernie, if our listeners want to check out your book um, or get more information from you or what you're doing, you know, where should they go? Uh, my website's the best place to get it. It's bowhuntingroad.com, like road trips, bowhuntingroad.com, and then uh, click on the Buy Books tab there, and uh, and you can order a book right off of there. It's also on Amazon.com. There's a Kindle edition for it also. I prefer people buy it off my website because Amazon gouges you on the commission, you know, but I'll take it anyway. I can get it, I guess. I'm, <laughs> I got a lot of money. I got a lot of books to sell before I break even here, but um, – I, I, I think the book will be fascinating to people if they have any interest at all in, in going on a bull hunting road trip. Yeah, definitely. And again, like I mentioned earlier, to everyone out there listening, I highly recommend it. It's The Freelance Bow Hunter by Bernie Berenger. It's a great read. I've been on a lot of hunts like this before, and I still found a lot of interesting information. And it's also a fun read. So go out there, check it out. Definitely would recommend that. So, 
Bernie, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really interesting. I'm, I'm sure everyone has, has really learned a lot. So thank you. Great. I appreciate that. So that said, thank you so much to everyone out there listening today. We're thrilled that you've taken time out of your day to join us. And you know, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far, we'd like to ask you to take a quick second to leave a review or rating on iTunes. It means a lot to us. It takes just a quick minute, and it makes a big difference in helping new people find the podcast. So thank you in advance for that help. And finally, we'd also like to thank our partners who help make this show possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you. That said, be sure to visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode 6, and that's the number 6, to view the show notes from today's episode. And if you haven't done so yet, please sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter as well, because that's where you're going to find news and updates from us coming straight to your inbox. So thank you again, Wired Hunt Nation, and until next time, have a great week and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.